I uh, start by apologizing if I'm lacking a little bit of my normal uh, enthusiasm this morning. I'm a little bit sick, not enough that I felt like I wanted to miss this. Well, I'm very excited this sermon to present to you guys this morning. However, it's not COVID. I did get tested, so you don't have to worry about that. But I'll keep my distance, and uh, that's that. So Spencer and I were talking this past week about Genesis 1 and 2. Because uh, all the high schoolers and I were doing the same reading plan. It's pretty cool. And uh, so we've been kind of chatting about some of the different features of the text. And so I asked Spencer on the first day of our reading a question that comes from Genesis chapter 2. And uh, this was a question posed to him, but it's a question for myself as well. Because I was curious about why the text was the way that it is. And here's the question. Why is it that Genesis 2 tells the same story as Genesis 1, just differently. And you might be wondering, like, Brent, what are you talking about? But turn over, and I'll show you. So Genesis 1, we know, is that in the beginning, God created the world. And we get, the, get the, those six days of creation. On the seventh day, God rested. And then at the end of chapter 2, verse 3, when God rests from all of his work, we read in Genesis 2, verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work in the ground. And a mist was going up from the land. It was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So what we get here is the origin of man, but it's a little bit different from the story we just read in chapter 1. So in chapter 1, obviously, we know God forms plants on day 3, and he forms man on day six. And so this story is kind of interesting because we have man formed before there were plants. And then God places man and then he forms the plants. And I'm not interested this morning in reconciling these two accounts. I don't think the Jews would have been interested in that either. Rather, what I'm interested in is answering why we have two creation stories back to back. And this is a question that fascinates me anytime this happens in the Bible. Whether we're talking about Chronicles Kings, whether we're talking about the four accounts of the Gospels, or here, uh, these two accounts of creation. And so this morning, I want to talk about two different creation accounts, these two creation accounts, and ask ourselves, what are we supposed to learn from them? And uh, I will uh, not hold you in suspense the whole time. I'll give you what I think, and then we'll spend the rest of the time kind of supporting that and then asking, well, what does that mean for us? So first of all, I want to say, uh, I've included two pictures here. We've got a picture of the world, and then we've got a picture of of this guy in a snapback in the middle of the woods. And uh, I think this this kind of well describes these two stories, because the first story is very cosmic. I mean, we've got God hovering over the surface of the waters. The earth has just been formed, but it's like formless and void, and then God is doing these like crazy cosmic things. The whole earth is being transformed. The first story is, if I may use some larger words here, 
um, both theocentric and geocentric. It is centered around God and the entire world. And that's the scope of Genesis chapter 1. But Genesis 2 tells a totally different perspective of the story. It is not focused on this giant, I mean, not even bird's eye view, Hubble eye view. Instead, it starts with man and it works out from there. And so the first story is asking questions about God, asking questions about the world. And the second story, Genesis 2, uh, well, when I say Genesis 2, I mean Genesis 2, 4 and the rest of 2, um, is intended to answer questions about man. It is anthropocentric. It is centered around man. It answers the questions of why are we here? What is the purpose of man? And specifically, I think chapter 2 is an excursus on chapter 1, verse 26, that says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That's kind of an abstract thing to say. What does it mean that we're made in the image and likeness of God? What does it mean that we have dominion over the birds and the animals? I think chapter 2 is intended to answer that for us. And so this morning, let's read, and we're going to study these these first two chapters of Genesis, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, these two creation accounts, and see what we can learn from them. So as I said, Genesis 1 is theocentric and geocentric. Also, I apologize for this uh, skewed thing. I had different fonts, and then I had to change it last night at like 11 o'clock because it, I just I messed up wrong fonts. Anyway, so that's why that's skewed. So Genesis 1, and I, I had the, the toughest time this past week kind of wrestling with how, how do I present to you Genesis 1? Because Genesis 1 is an amazing text. I mean, it is probably the finest work of poetry ever created. And I mean, I could, I could dissect it for you. I could show you all the different parts, but I don't want to lose the magic. I don't want to leave you with just like dead pieces of frog on the table. We're not going to dissect this and lose it. I want to instead uh, examine it, experience it. And so I'm going to read for you the entirety of Genesis 1 through uh, 2, verse 3. And you can read along if you'd like, but I think it might be even better if you just kind of close your eyes and imagine this. Try and experience this. Try and witness it. Because what's neat about this chapter is that their perspective is almost as if, you know, we've got God hovering over the surface of the waters, and it's almost as if we're there too, experiencing it with him, watching the earth be formed and things be divided. It's an incredible chapter. So... Strap in, let's read Genesis chapter 1. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning, the first day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning, the second day. 
And God said, let the waters under heaven be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed each according to their kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is the seed each according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea monster and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters in the sea and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind, livestock and creeping things, beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock and all of the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth. Every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast on the earth and to every bird of the heaven and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw everything he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. It's an amazing text, an amazing picture. I mean, just imagining 
the, the water is being separated and the, the, them being piled up and an earth created. It's astonishing. And I can't help but read this and see the power of God, the absolute control he has over creation. And I think that is what Genesis 1 is intended to show us. It's to show us that God is master and creator of all, that all that is in this world is under the power of God. And God made each and everything, everything down to the, the leaves to the giant sea monsters that fill the earth. Everything has the, the signature of God on it. He is its creator. And this would have been especially important to understand in the context in which this book is written. Because I think there's two parts to this idea that God is master and creator of all. First of all, that to answer the question, who is master and creator of all? It's God, okay? So, for example, in, in this society, there is... Uh, there's a Canaanite god, his name is Tiamat, and he's a big sea monster. He's in control of the sea, kind of a chaos monster. And we see God separating the seas. We see God bringing form. I mean, these kinds of things would be an intentional polemic against a god like that. You think about lesser gods, which are often uh, identified as, as stars and, and suns, and we see God created the angels and all the lower spiritual beings, day four. When he created the stars, we see God is the creator of, of this entire world. There is nothing. There is no other God, no other creature that has any power like our God does. He is the one true and living God. And if you were to read this story, you would immediately see that. That there is no room for another. Our God is the only God. And then that points us then to the next half of this. God is master and creator of all. And we see, look, he has power over everything. There is no force on earth that he does not control. We've got, if he's creating sea monsters, if he's separating land from sea, like there is nothing out of his power. And so as we enter into this world, where we live and we face various challenges and we see the things of this world that seem so hectic and seem out of control, we can understand very clearly that nothing is outside the power of God. He created it. He controls it. He is in charge here. And that is the first thing that we learn from this text. But I think there's another thing that is kind of important for us to take away from this text, and that is that we serve a God of order. So if you recall with me in verse uh, 3, sorry, verse 2, says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This story begins with the earth formless and void. And the rest of this story is intended to remedy that. Uh, verses, uh, chapter, or days one through three, solve the problem of form. Okay, we have light and darkness added. We have waters below, waters above. We have land and sea. The earth, though once formless, now has form. And then, in a parallel, uh, God fills these things that he has formed. So he formed the night and day. And now he 
fills them with stars and sun. God formed the firmament and the waters below, and now he fills them with birds and with fish. God formed the dry land, and now he fills it with creatures. Though once the world was formless and void, now God fills it. It is formless and void no longer. And this teaches us something as well about God, really something that we might have overlooked in terms of this, their connection to this concept. But you think about the fact that in, Paul, that in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, our God is not an author of confusion. We serve a God of order. You can think about uh, in Leviticus, for example, that they're given food laws and many other laws so that they can make a distinction between what is holy and what is not holy. We serve a God of distinction, of dividing the, the night from the day, the waters from the earth. This is the kind of God that we serve, and we know that from Genesis 1. We serve a God, again, of, of distinction that on the, on the day of judgment, there will be those divided who are uh, sheep and lambs, those who have done the will of God and those who have not done the will of God. We serve a God who orders the world according to order, according to logic, and he has given us, his creatures, that same sense of order and logic. The world works according to order. And that is something that we learn from Genesis 1. And so Genesis 1, as I've said, it teaches us about our God. It teaches us about this world that we inhabit and, and what the purpose of it is, that we are here as the, the subject of God's creation to uh, teach about God, to, to proclaim. You know, we talked about the heavens declare the glory of God. We talked about you know, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen. We have this creation that, that displays things about God. And we have this story that tells us about our God, his power, about his sense of order and logic. So Genesis chapter 1 teaches us about God. It teaches us about the earth. But Genesis chapter 2, as I said, is here to answer different questions. So Genesis chapter 2, and we're not quite done with Genesis 1. I'm going to come back uh, in my conclusion talk a little bit more about that. But in Genesis chapter 2, is different. So Genesis chapter 2, as I said, is focused on man. The purpose of Genesis 2, I believe, is to answer the question, what does it mean that man is made in the image of God? What does it mean that man is given dominion over the world? And so like Genesis chapter 1, I want to read Genesis chapter 2, because uh, as a wise preacher once said, the best thing I'm ever going to say while I'm up here is just what the text says. So Genesis chapter 2, again, I want you to imagine this, because the story it tells is, is again, incredible, as we see the world formed around man. So Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4. These are the generations of heaven and the earth when they were created in the day of the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. 
And out of the garden, sorry, out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah. And there was gold and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make for him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to all the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Again, Genesis 2, incredible story. And again, rather than being focused on the whole world, this is about one man, about Adam, and about the way that he represents um, our task as God's image bearers. So let me talk about image bearing for a moment. Image bearing, this idea that we are created in the image of God, what does it mean? So again, an idea that has been many, many an ink pot spilled over this idea. But at least in part, we understand that the word image here is the same word for image that's talked about like as a graven image. Uh, that we are in some ways the idols of God here on earth. Now, of course, that has difficulties in, in discussion. But the idea, that idea is helpful, I think, in understanding a couple things. So first of all, uh, the second command, thou shalt not make a graven image of the Lord God. Why? Because man That's what man is. We are here to represent God. And so if we make an idol of God, then we kind of undermine the whole purpose of man. Second, what is our purpose? It is to be here to represent God here on earth, to be filled with his breath, his spirit, and to represent him here on earth. But what does that mean more broadly? I think chapter 2 shows us that. Because chapter 2 shows us that we are here to represent God on earth, and we do that by doing the things that God did in creation. And this is kind of astonishing when you notice it. So, for example, God brought order out of chaos, out of disorder. He fashioned this world, and he put it in order. And God tells man to, in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 28, 
to fill the earth and subdue it. In chapter 2, verse 15, it says that the Lord took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. That man's job is to sustain the garden, to watch over it, to help it be a proper garden. And as you know, gardens require a lot of work. you got to weed things, although they didn't have to at that time. Uh, but you, you have to do work to keep this garden, to keep it up, to maintain it, but also to help you know, subdue the earth, to make it habitable. And as we see in verse 5 of chapter 2, it says, When there was no bush of the field, sorry, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Part of the reason in chapter 2 that we're told that there were no plants is because plants require the presence of man to take care of them. That we are here to sustain the earth just as God is existing to sustain the earth. Further, we see man is given dominion over the animals. And we say, okay, what does that mean precisely? And again, Genesis 2 tells us in kind of broad terms something that echoes of Genesis 1. And that is, as you notice on day one, God separates the light and darkness, and he calls the light day and the darkness night. Then he calls the, fir- you know, the separation heavens. He calls things. He names stuff. But, chapters, but on day four, five, and six, God doesn't name anything. Until you get to Genesis 2, and we're told that verse 20, man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heaven, and every beast of the field. That part of Adam's job was to name the animals. And that, again, doesn't seem all that significant until you recognize that that's what God did. God was there to name stuff. And then he handed that off to Adam, that Adam was able to name the animals. And so what we begin to see then is that man is here in many ways to do the things which God did, but in a lesser sort of way. Because as we understand, man is a created being, okay? He, like the the birds of chapter one, is given this command to be fruitful and multiply. But in addition to the command to be fruitful and multiply, he is also given a a command to rule the earth. So man is here in this kind of uh, middle management position, okay? He is both a part of creation and also there to rule over creation. And that's why in chapter 3, which we won't talk too much about, but when the serpent is tempting Eve and he says, listen, if you eat this fruit, you will become like God. That's why that's a temptation to her because ultimately man was intended in many ways to be like God. But in also in many ways, to not be like God. We are a part of creation and also image bearers of God. We are distinct because we are the only creatures to have the breath, the spirit of God put in us. We are the only ones in chapter one which are actually formed by God. It's interesting, God, when he speaks uh, the animals into existence, he says, let the, let the waters form sea creatures. Let the air give, you know, give birth to... like." God speaks these things into existence, but when he makes man, he forms man. Man has a very special place. 
And so what does that mean for us? I know this is very like cosmic in scale, and I think it's intended to be. But what does it mean that we are here to be image bearers of God, to be representatives of God, but also a part of creation? I think that means that man is ultimately intended to create and to uh, create order in the same way that God does. Um, I think about this in terms of like a business, for example. People who take raw components uh, and they see an opportunity and they order people together and they create something new that wasn't there before. That when you, uh, in, in your like, amateur carpentry kind of idea, that you're like, oh, I want to build a shelf, that you take raw components and you, you take what was previously unordered and you bring order to it. That man is intended to find the things around him and to bring order to them in the same way that God did, that we are here to subdue the earth, that we are here to create order, that we are here to do garden work. And I think that gives us kind of an idea of uh, that and also to represent God's interests on earth. I mean, God wants us to be like him. And as we read you know, the rest of the Bible, we see God has filled us with his spirit, not just with the breath of life, but also with his spirit to transform us, to make us like him. And in those ways, we are his image bearers as well. So Genesis 1 then answers questions of cosmic proportion. Genesis 2 tells us what we are supposed to be. And so then as we bring this to a close, uh, I said we'd come back to Genesis 1. So Genesis 1 tells us God is the creator. Genesis 2 tells us that man is created, but we are created in God's image, that we are somehow both a part of creation and uh, distinct from it. But as we conclude Genesis 1, we read, starting in verse 28, God blessed them, and God said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth, every tree with seed and the fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heaven and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and morning, the sixth day. Here we end the six days of creation, which are found in a perfect parallel, the first three days and the latter three days. But on either end of the six days of creation, we have first God hovering over the waters. And now at the end, we have the seventh day, the Sabbath day. And the seventh day is fascinating in comparison to the other days because the seventh day has very little in common with the other days. God doesn't say, let there be Sabbath. He just does it. We have no indication that it was so. We have nothing that God calls things. In fact, we don't even have a evening and morning the seventh day. The only thing day seven has in common with the other days is in verse three. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. That just like day uh, five and six, where God blessed the animals and God blessed man and the other animals. So we see here that God blesses the seventh day. 
And as I said, this doesn't have an evening and morning. And I think that is critical as we begin to understand the purpose of this Sabbath day moving forward and what it means for all of us. So creation is time-bound, okay? It happens on night and day, evening and morning. But this rest at the end on the seventh day is not bound by time. Yes, it happens on the seventh day, but we don't get that same sort of closure that we get with creation. And I think that reminds us of something important about creation, and that is creation, this whole world that we, are, that we live in, is in some way, just as it was created, going to be destroyed, that it has an end. But let me tell you what does not have an end, and that is the heaven. That, the, that is the rest that God has prepared for us in heaven. And if we had time, we would read Hebrews uh, chapter 4, and we would read about the rest that awaits us. That after our work has done, uh, is done, we too can rest with God. That at the end of time, there is a rest awaiting us both, for us and our God to be together in heaven or the you know, new heavens, new earth. Something new, something different, something beyond creation. And it is for that that we anticipate together the culmination of, of all that we have seen, this breath of God within us, this representation of God that we are called to be, at the end of time, we can rest with God from our works. And that is where the creation story ends and where the rest of our lives and the rest of eternity begin. Thank you so much for your kind attention. We'll now be dismissed to class.